And with that, would you please stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. This is Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The book of Genesis, like pretty much all of the Bible, although it was written for us, uh, it was written for us and for all of God's people, it wasn't written to us. And that's an important distinction to make. It was not written to a 21st century rationalistic uh, scientific culture and just to the extent that we apply those filters and those lenses to the text is the extent to which we are going to misunderstand and misinterpret the Genesis text. Uh, and so who was it written to? That's such an important question when we talk about the Bible and how to properly interpret it. Uh, and the answer to that is that is there is no, it's no secret that there are, exist, there, there exist other creation narratives from other cultures that actually predate Genesis. Genesis was written 1400 BC. We know there are other, there were other creation accounts that were written prior to that, uh, 23, 2400 BC. Uh, and it was to the people, that is who Genesis is written to, the people who were under, uh, under that teaching or under those creation narratives, to the people who were under the yoke, the hard yoke of these creation narratives that described God or the gods as malicious, as capricious, as unreliable, uh, as very much like very powerful, corrupt versions of ourselves, where these gods would just as soon kill you as answer your prayer. And Genesis was written to that culture and to those cultures uh, to show them something very different about, about God. So if you were, I want to start out by, by reading one of those creation tales. This is the Babylonian creation tale. I'm going to slightly abridge it a little bit. But if you were a kid uh, growing up in Babylon or in Uruk or in Nineveh in the first Babylonian dynasty, this is the stuff that you would get in Sunday school. Are you ready? Okay. This is how the story goes. I want you to listen to some of the, th some of the threads of truth that remain in these corrupted stories, uh, but also see how very different they are just by listening to them. Uh, here is a prime example the, from the Enuma Elish, which means from on high. And it starts in the same way as Genesis. In the beginning, listen. In the beginning, neither heaven nor earth had names. Apsu, the god of fresh waters, and Tiamat, the goddess of the salt ocean, and Mumu, the god of the mist that rises from both of them, were still mingled as one. There were no mountains, there was no pasture land, not even a reed marsh could be found to break the surface of the waters. 
Then it goes on to talk about how Apsu, the god of fresh water, Tiamat, the god of salt water, these original gods start begetting lesser gods. They have children who are gods. Those children gods have children who are gods. Till they finally get to the third generation of their great, or fourth of their great grandson gods, uh, and the god Ea is born. He is the god of rivers, and he is the cleverest of all the gods, and he comes to rule even over the older gods. Continuing. Apsu and Tiamat's descendants became an unruly crowd. And eventually Apsu, in his frustration and inability to sleep with the clamor, went to Tiamat and he proposed to her that he slay all of their noisy children. Tiamat was furious at the suggestion to kill their children, but Apsu resolved to go through with his murderous plan. So Apsu decides to kill all the lesser gods because they keep him awake at night. Uh, but there's a plot twist. Ea being conniving, Ea uh, being clever, springs a trap and kills Apsu uh, and then sends his own son Marduk, the four-eared, four-eyed giant, who was the god of rains and storms, to finish the job by killing their mother as well, by killing Tiamat. And here's what happened. So Marduk armed himself with a bow and arrow, club and lightning, and he went in search of Tiamat, rolling his thunder and storms in front of him. He attacked and defeated Tiamat's lesser army of gods, and Tiamat was left alone to fight Marduk. And as she howled, as they closed for battle, she struggled, as Marduk caught her in her nets, she opened her mouth to devour him, and he shot an arrow down her throat and split her heart, and she was slain. Marduk then took his club and split Tiamat's water-laden body in half like a clam. And he put in the sky, he put half in the sky and made the heavens. From the other half of Tiamat's body, he made the earth which he placed over the waters of Apsu, which now arise in wells and springs. And from her eyes he made flow the Tigris and the Euphrates. And across this land he made the grains and herbs and pastures and fields, the rains and the seeds, the cows, the ewes, and the forests and the orchards. And then the story finishes off by saying how Marduk takes blood from a slain god and clay from the earth, and the spit from other gods, and they create man upon the earth to be a slave race, to do all the work that the lesser gods don't want to do. And that, boys and girls, is how the gods made heaven and earth by killing one another, and how they made you a slave. Now get back to work. <laughs> now look, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm adding some emphasis, but I'm poetic. <laughs> emphasis in there, but imagine being a kid growing up under that. Imagine being in that culture where that was, this is what people really thought the gods were like and where things came from and who they were and the relationship to God. You're a slave. You have zero value. Your only purpose is to do the work that we don't want to do and we might answer your prayers or we may give you polio or send the pox on your family just for fun to watch. Because that's how the gods were. Imagine growing up underneath that teaching. And so what is Genesis? 
Genesis is what we call a polemic, which means it's a passionate uh, and aggressive argument against all these false ideas about God at the time, and also false ideas about God of our time. It's literally God saying to us, don't you believe that nonsense? I am nothing like that. And then he goes on to explain in the Genesis account who he is and what he's really like. That's the purpose. And so if that's true, and that's what's going on here, what is God really like? And the very first thing that we learn is that God alone is God. <laughs> Sounds really simple, but it's a lot harder than you might think. God alone is God. What is that? In that story, maybe you heard some like little shreds of stuff that matched up with Genesis, but you also heard some very different things, right? What are the different things? The, the, the Genesis text is meant to highlight and to set into contrast what God is like compared to those stories. So what are those contrasts? The first one, first big one, is the starting point. Where does the starting point of these creation tales begin? In the Enuma Elish, the starting point is a universe that already exists, matter that already exists, a, a, a watery chaos, the unformed universe is already there, and then the gods go about manufacturing uh, you know, and forming the world out of the dead body of, of Tiamat. They're forming the world with pre-existing matter. However, in Genesis, what's the beginning? The beginning is nothing. Only God exists in his self-existent, eternal, uh, joyous, holy, complete being. And out of his love for us, out of a desire to share his goodness and his love with a creation and with the people, he creates all things by the word of his power. He speaks. Boom. And the whole universe at a specific point in time Space, time, matter begins. Uh, and the second thing, second being contrast, are the players involved. In Enuma Elish, right, it starts out, there are multiple warring gods fighting against each other, all basically equal in power. There's suspense, who's going to win, who's going to come out on top. Uh, you know, Marduk eventually comes out on top as the chief god, but there's multiple gods warring with each other to create, but the Bible, only God exists f first, and the heaven and earth speaks about God creating the world of the physical, visible universe and the world of the invisible heavenly realm of the angels. It talks about creating what we call a two-world Cosmology. Cosmology means like a story of beginnings, right? How do we know that? Uh, how do we know that heaven isn't just sky or space and earth isn't just the planet? It's because in Colossians, Paul defines it for him. He says, talking about Jesus, that for uh, by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. And then he defines those terms by saying visible and invisible. And in case we're confused about what invisible means, he goes on to talk about who populates the invisible realm, and he says, 
Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, those are all ranks of angels. We talked a little bit about that when we talked about the Nephilim. So what does that mean? It means God didn't just, it's not just a picture of God creating in the beginning the physical universe, it's God creating the entire universe, both the unseen realm of heaven and the seen or the visible realm of earth. Nothing else existed prior to that. Nothing else existed. It's a completely different paradigm, a completely different story. God alone was there. God alone created all things. God alone created all things out of nothing. And so what does that teach us, right? That's the big idea. The big idea is that God alone is God. There's nobody else like him. Uh, he has come so different from us. He is so much bigger than us. He is so much more powerful than us. Uh, he is so much different than us that we can't ever, we would never, we could never, even in heaven, possibly be able to comprehend the fullness of who he is. In fact, everything we know about God is uh, what Calvin said is, he gives to us in baby language. He gives us these analogies to give us like a slight understanding of what he's like, but it's there are analogies of what he's really like. What he's really like is even bigger than that. Um, Isaiah says, or God says in Isaiah, I alone am God. There is no other God. There has never been and there never will be. Only God is God. He is a category of one. Um, now, why is that important for us? Why is that important for us to understand? Maybe you're saying, look, Rob, nobody, nobody that I know worships the Babylonian pantheon at the altar of Marduk anymore, so why is it so important for us to understand that God alone is God? Well, one, one very good reason is that there are millions of people inside and outside the church that worship the American pantheon at the altar of Oprah. You know what I'm talking about? What is, if you listen to Oprah theology, if you listen to popular religious beliefs, culture-wide, what's the most popular religious belief there is? Is that we are all part of God. That we are uh, somehow an extension of God. That our soul is really part of God, an extension of Him, and what our big problem in life is that we've forgotten that fact. We have spiritual amnesia, and so what we need to do uh, is remember who we are. We are all God, and then we'll know how to act and how to behave, and we'll start to change. Uh, and so why, maybe, so you're saying, maybe, you're saying, Rob, okay, I get it, how, you know, the whole Marduk thing is bad, and how, the, you know, Oh, that would have been really bad for the Babylonian kid in, in that Sunday school class, but why is this understanding of we're all extensions of God so bad? How does, it, how does it affect us? And it affects us primarily by where you go to look for truth. Think about it. If you are an extension of God, your soul is part of God and you are connected to God, where do you go to look for truth? You go inside, you meditate, you clear your mind, you try to connect with the God within so that you will understand from inter internally 
what is good and true and beautiful. However, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that our hearts are horribly corrupt. I, I have this, this, this greeting card that I save forever on the, on the wall of my, of my office. It said, it had a picture of a guy, you know, who was clearly drunk. <laughs> and it said, I followed my heart and I ended up at the bar. <laughs> because, <laughs> because that's the story of my life. The desires of my heart are questionable. Sometimes they're good, seasoned with bad. Sometimes they're just downright bad and will get me in a ton of trouble if I were to follow them. And so if, if we look inside for truth, we're looking for our corrupted hearts to present to us what's good and true and beautiful. We will be horribly led astray. The Bible says we are to look outside of ourselves. In the Bible, meditation isn't to clear your mind so that the God within can speak. In the Bible, meditation is to, is to clear our mind of our own foolish ideas by meditating on God's word, his revelation. The Bible teaches us from God's wisdom what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. And the more we look to that external or outside source, the better off we're going to be. And so I want, you to, I want you to notice that is a direct opposition to one another, right? That whole religious understanding of looking inside is completely opposite to what the Bible talks about. It is about as unchristian as it can possibly be, and it's wildly popular in the church. Uh, and it's that way on purpose. It's satanic. It's satanic. I've always wanted to preach a sermon on like the faces of evil and instead of putting up like Beelzebub and Hitler and Mengele to put up John Lennon and Oprah Winfrey and uh, Deepak Chopra and uh, you know Eckhart Tolle and all of these spiritual leaders because they're presenting this idea of looking to your corrupted heart for truth as ascended spiritual wisdom which is the, the, the epitome of satanic. And so that's, you know, that's the purpose of Genesis for us to say, you are not God. We shouldn't really have to be told that. <laughs> Based on your daily life, you should be able to look at your behavior on any given day and say to yourself, I am not God. That's pretty clear. However, the way our corrupted hearts are, we have to be told and shown from the text, you are not God. God is God, which means God alone has the ability to teach us what wisdom is, what truth is, what righteousness is, what is true, good, and beautiful. Uh, and that's what Genesis is about. It is a polemic against those terrible ideas about God that we all want to believe. So that leads to another question. Second part, if God is so different and so high above us, uh, is that all that we can know, that God is just holy and different than us? Well, the second thing we can know from the text is that God, the God, we can know all kinds of things about the God of creation. 
from the creative act itself. So we can know that God is the God of creation. This is the second thing. I, before I was a Christian, I used to say to myself, or if anybody would ask me, what did I believe about God? I would say something like, uh, to the effect that if there was ever any real knowledge about God, it has long been lost by all the corrupt versions of religion and all the corruptions of man and all the shenanigans that have gone on to where if there was any true knowledge of God, it's been lost long ago. And so God, he can't hold us accountable. We have an excuse if we just say, I don't know. Uh, and I believe that. However, what does Paul, the apostle, say in Romans? He says something very different. He says this. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In all things, and in all things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What is he saying there? He's saying that a reasonable person can look at creation and know certain things, important things, about God. One of my favorite apologetic books is a book by Norman Geisler that's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Fantastic book. And basically, just to, to put it quickly in a nutshell, the, the, the premise of the book is Geisler goes through all the scientific discoveries of the last, you know, since, since 19, you know, since, since Einstein's theory of relativity, he brings up all the pertinent scientific uh, discoveries that show, that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that all things came into being, space, time, and matter at a specific point in time, out of nothing. What we would now call the Big Bang Theory, right? Uh, and that because that Big Bang Theory is true, there's really only two options on the table at this point. Either nothing created everything, or something created everything. It's, I love it when people like, or have that gift of just putting everything in really simple, clear terms that you can't like weasel out from under, you know, with all sorts of like rational, like deniable plausibility and hypothetical possibility. And, Either nothing created everything or something created everything. And, and he basically, that's the point of the book. He says, if you, don't, if you don't have enough faith to believe that nothing created everything, you don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It actually takes, in his argument, more faith to believe that than it does to believe that something created everything. And then he goes about and talks about what this something is like just from our observation of the, of the creation, what we know scientifically about the Big Bang and about the origin of life and the origin of the universe. And this is what we can know about whatever that something is. First, uh, we know that it whatever it was, it created everything from, from, from outside of space and time and matter because none of that existed, right? Which means necessarily that whatever that something is, uh, it is timeless, it's non-spatial, it exists outside of space, uh, and it's immaterial because it existed before material existence. 
we can also reasonably assume that it's self-existent. It's always existed outside of what it's created. Uh, second thing we can know is that it is unimaginably powerful to be able to create the entire visible universe, just what we can see, not to mention the whole invisible world. It had to be unimaginably powerful to create the entire universe out of nothing. Third thing, it had to be supremely intelligent uh, in order to design such an incredibly precise universe that, that is perfectly tuned to uphold human life on Earth, that when you study the, the Big Bang and the blast pattern of the Big Bang, it was a managed and precise explosion. It's almost, it's almost it's funny if, to watch like, you know, astronomers or physicists talk about the initial explosion. They talk about punctuation, where the explosion expanded for three milliseconds and then stopped and then expanded again and then stopped in order to create these continents, the distribution pattern of the continents of galaxies that exist in the universe uh, aren't the product of a random blast pattern. They're the product of a precision uh, and managed explosion. Super intelligence, superpower, supernatural outside of time and space. And fourth thing is we know that this thing, whatever it is, it has to be personal. It can't be, it's not, it doesn't just fit the picture of an, of an unthinking, unconscious force. Because it had to choose to convert nothingness into time and space. And it had to choose uh, those random, those blast patterns and those on the design that we see. And I would add, uh, you know, also this, there's so much unnecessary just because beauty in the world, in the created world, all that speaks to a personal conscience, conscious power. And so in other words, what he's saying is, whatever it was that was that cause that created everything, we can know just from studying the science that whatever that thing is, it was a personal, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, and self-existent spirit. And folks, that's a short list. That's a short list of things. Essentially, Yahweh, Allah. Those are the big things. At that point, those are the only two choices that we have. You know, I don't think, most of, I was born in 1965, so I don't really, I don't have any memory of like the trauma that happened when the Big Bang Theory was finally conceded. Prior to that, everybody believed that the universe was eternal. Things had always existed. Einstein himself said that when he was, when he was working out his scientific theories, he's, he used this surprisingly emotional language saying, this really disturbs me. <laughs> Why? Because it pointed to, Einstein being a Jew and he knew Genesis, it pointed to the creation of time and space and matter at a specific point out of nothing, and it bothered him because it challenged his own religious beliefs. Uh, but there was one guy, a guy named Robert Jastrow. He was a PhD in theoretical, theoretical physics from Columbia University, also the founder of NASA's Goddard 
Institute for Space Studies, about as highly credentialed as you can get in the world of science. He wrote a book called God and the Astronomers, and about this discovery, he said this. He said, astronomers now find that they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth, heaven and earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover, that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. For the scientist who has lived his life, who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Isn't that great? Now, this was 1973 when he wrote this. They hadn't had time to like regroup and come up with a bunch of nonsense about alien seeding and multiverses and total guesswork. Uh, and so he was coming to grips with the reality of what the science pointed to. And but as, as amazing as that is, and I hope that you're all encouraged by that, as amazing as all that is, uh, if this was all we knew about God, that he was personal, omniscient, uh, all-powerful, uh, eternal, self-existent spirit, if those were the only things we knew about God from what we could see from the creation and the created realm, he would remain in the realm of just raw, terrifying power. He still is really no different than Marduk. He's just an incredibly powerful, foreign, alien, completely different being who can, you know, maybe he'll answer our prayers, maybe he'll squash us like a bug. There's no telling what he's going to do just based on general revelation. And so praise God, verse 2 of Genesis comes in and teaches us something else about God, something even more amazing than verse 1, something that is seriously, fantastically beautiful about God, and that is that God is not just the God of creation, but he is also the God of recreation. He is the God of salvation. How do we know that? Look, a lot of what, you know, because we just talked about, a lot of what we can know about God is readily available for anyone to see who just looks at creation and the created order and, and, is, and is honest about it. Uh, but the most important things about God, the most important things about God can only be known through his revelation to us. It can only be known through his revelation in the Bible and nowhere else. And that's why the Bible is so important. It tells us not just that God is the all-powerful creator, but it tells us and shows us how God is, is the savior. Genesis 2. It says, The earth 
was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 1 is kind of like a summary statement. Like in the beginning, in this beginning period of time, God created the heavens and the earth, everything from nothing. And then verse 2, uh, it picks up where all the other creation narratives start. There's a waste, a void, an emptiness, uh, unshaped, unformed matter, the created world. Uh, and God starts to bring order to the universe he's just created. And more important than that, uh, God first brings life. There is a ton of fighting, <laughs> knock down, drag out, theological fistfights about that word hovering in the text. It's a, word, it's a Hebrew word, merachefet. Uh, and it talks about the spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, merachefet. The Spirit of God hovers over the face of the chaos waters of the deep. And everybody, there's a lot of argument about what that word hovers means, right? It could mean, and it does mean, some places in Scripture it talks about like, uh, like quick, rapid movements. So it, you know, it could be a, a bird fluttering wings. It could give the impression of like vibration or like bringing, like using the Spirit of God vibrating over the face of the matter and bringing life out of it. Uh, it could mean hovering. It's used elsewhere of a, of a mother eagle who is hovering over and tending to, carrying oversight over, over her young and developing, developing young. Uh, it could mean brooded, again, like bearing, bearing, uh, as in childbearing, as in giving life. And I think the key is this. Uh, the verbal form, and this is a little technical, but this is important. It's a feminine verbal form. And so what it, it says that the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, and then it speaks about the Spirit of God in a feminine verb, assigning femininity to the Spirit of God, hovers or broods or is giving life over the face of the waters. And I think that's the key. Why would God, why would the Holy Spirit use a feminine verbal form in the description of himself? Maybe that freaks you out, right? Most of the time, God's preferred pronoun is he, and that's true. However, God isn't like us. God isn't masculine or feminine. And he doesn't have gender like we do. And so God is depicted throughout Scripture of displaying all of these gender qualities, all the qualities of men and all the best qualities of women. Uh, and so I think the key is that feminine verb that's talking uh, and trying to tell us God is using his own revealed gender norms for us to explain something about the Bible and himself that is fantastically important. And that is that the Spirit of God is hovering over the formless and empty creation, infusing it with life. That's what he's doing there. Man, I think that's so awesome. When I was translating this text, I came across that verb, and I was like, 
what the, <laughs> what does this mean? Uh, you know, so whenever, like, for your, you know, for your own Bible study, whenever you come across something like that where you're just like, oh my gosh, what does that mean? Start digging because there's gold in there. There's always gold in those super confusing parts. That's why we just did a whole series on the weirdest stuff in the Bible. God is teaching us. That's so important to not miss that, that he's using those understood gender norms that we have, that women are the givers of life to explain something about the spirit. The spirit is hovering over that unformed creation and he's infusing it, he's giving it, and he's bringing forth life. Um, But not, it's not, it doesn't stop at just bringing forth biological life. Those same themes of water and spirit then shoot forward in the Bible throughout the rest of the text as, as these, these words uh, that are the, become the main themes for recreation or become the main themes uh, for the, not just the giving of biological life, but God through his, through his spirit uh, giving eternal spiritual life, bringing people out of spiritual death. Those two words, water and spirit, are key phrases for that idea from the rest, through the rest of Scripture. Where? We see it in the flood. Uh, we see the water, right? We see that Noah and his family are saved through that water of chaos and death, and that when, uh, at the end of the flood, God again sends the Spirit of God to, to recede the waters and bring forth a new creation. We see it again in the Exodus. The Israelites are saved again through the chaos waters of death. Uh, and they're protected in that by the spirit cloud that's hovering over the waters. The spirit cloud moves between them and the Egyptian army, holds them off, saves them, allows them to go through chaos, and then shepherds them throughout the entire wilderness journey. Most, maybe most prominently, we see it in Ezekiel 36, where God promises in the new covenant that he will sprinkle clean water upon you. He will make you clean. And he will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all your idols. And he will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. All that God's work. And then Jesus, talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3, he says straight up to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. What's he talking about? He's not saying that baptism cleanses you, but he's saying what that baptism symbolizes. The baptism symbolizes of washing you and cleansing you from your sin and from your idolatry and from your moral filth. Uh, And then the Spirit comes and gives us new life. Water, and spirit uh, become like the bedrock themes of how Jesus is not just the God of creation, but the God of recreation, recreating us in the spirit uh, to be his people in an entirely new and new heavens and a new earth. That's the end game. And it's this revelation, it's this idea that Jesus is the God of recreation that makes him utterly 
different from all the other gods. Every other, every other god, every other conception of God is, a, is, a, is an image of raw, terrifying power who throws down demands. If you do this, I'll think about letting you live. Uh, but Jesus alone is distinct because of his characteristic, his internal character of love, part of which is a part of the bigger character of God's goodness. God has proven himself to be good, and God has proven and shown that his, an internal, unchangeable characteristic of him is love, and that he has exercised that love for us by not just creating us and not just giving us biological life, but then coming and rescuing us from our rebellion and giving us spiritual and eternal life through the life of his son for all who believe. And that is why Christianity is not only true, but it's also beautiful. And it's the best option by far. So wrapping it up in just the first short, few short words of Genesis, we've already established that God is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, and truth. And that's not a bad start. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for revealing so much about who you really are. Lord, every single one of us, whether we want to admit it or not, has one of the, secretly that Babylonian kid living inside of us. Or we don't trust you. We think on some days that you might just kill us. <laughs> we think that you might just drop us off on the side of the road as a problem child. We feel like you might just send us away with a set of luggage and a restraining order on our 18th birthday. Uh, we think that you are like the lesser gods of the world, but you are not. You have made it super clear that you alone are God. You are unimaginably powerful and impossibly far above us. And yet, at the same time, you are incredibly near. That through your spirit, you have drawn near to us. You have loved us first. You have brought salvation to us. And in resting in that, uh, that's how we change and become more like you. Lord, you are utterly unique and different from every conception of God that man has ever invented. And we praise you that who you are is so much better than anything we could have possibly made up. And we pray you would help us to believe that and act in it and live in it. In Jesus' name, amen.